the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt. I almost said Matt Bates. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast along with Matt Bates, who co-founded the podcast with me and drew johnson aaron heim chris tilling and amy brown hughes we're really glad you've decided to listen in and we appreciate all of you before we get going i want to mention that there's an opportunity to win one of matt bates one uh, one of three copies of matt bates new book gospel allegiance and the way you enter that is before february 5th on one of your favorite social media sites um copy a picture of the book and then hashtag on script podcasts and, and you know on the site i'm butchering this but you know what i mean you, you add that to wherever you're copying the picture and you'll enter the running to receive a free copy and uh, you help us get the word out about on script as well and if you're wondering if virtual bonus points are available why yes there are and here's how you get them you answer the question as you post to your favorite social media site and answer the question, why is OnScript your favorite Bible theology podcast in the universe? And then you'll get bonus points for that. I want to say thank you as we start out to Ed Hackey for tirelessly producing each episode of OnScript and bringing it to you. Without him, you wouldn't be able to listen, so um, make sure you express your thanks to in some way. If you email OnScriptPodcast at gmail.com, I'll be sure to send it on to them. Also, thanks to Rebecca Terhune for all her help with marketing and communications. Um, She's also an essential part of the OnScript team. So thank you, Rebecca. All right. Enjoy the episode. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Matthew Bates, and I have with me Aaron Heim as we're going to co-host this episode together. And we apologize if we sound like dead frogs. As uh, we were both uh, talking beforehand that we have some sort of lingering cold and uh, our throats are kind of messed up. But maybe it just makes us sound husky and awesome. I don't know. Uh, I'll let you determine that for yourself. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, there is a phrase that has caused no small amount of interpretative consternation, pistis Christu. It occurs in key passages where Paul is speaking about justification, so its meaning is theologically central. Traditionally, it had come to be translated as faith in Christ, but in the 1980s, debate opened up afresh following the publication of Richard Hayes' revised dissertation, The Faith of Jesus Christ. Hayes argued that it should be translated The Faithfulness of Christ. Ever since, the debate has raged, with numerous books and articles advocating for different interpretive options for Pistis Christu. But David Downs and Benjamin Lapinga have an exciting new book that may break the deadlock. The Faithfulness of the Risen Christ, Pistis and the Exalted Lord in the Pauline Letters, published by Baylor University Press in 2019. I think listeners are going to discover that this book has rich contributions, uh, Pistis Christu, obviously, but beyond that, too. David and Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. We, uh, we're grateful uh, for the opportunity to chat. 
So David and Ben, let's jump right into it so that listeners aren't left hanging. Give us the one minute elevator pitch for your book. So we argue um, the debate about Pistis Christu, uh, as Matt just summarized, uh, has focused along two poles, essentially. Those who think that it is a reference to the term is a reference to Jesus's faith in Jesus and those who think it is a, a, a reference to the faithfulness of Jesus. And it, among that, within that second group, um, really without exception, uh, pretty much everyone who has argued that the phrase says something about Jesus's own pistis or Jesus's own faith or faithfulness has taken the stance that it refers to the faithfulness of Jesus in his death on the cross. So it's, it's limited to the crucifixion. And our book essentially argues that the crucifixion is not the end of the story of Jesus's faithfulness, that the term um, in almost all of its instances in the Pauline letters, or when Paul talks about the, uh, the, the faith or the faithfulness of Jesus, um, he is referring also to the faithfulness of the risen and exalted Lord, um, uh, who is faithful to those who are uh, joined to him or uh, united to him by, by pistis or by faith. Yeah, and I think that's the uh, the key point there is uh, at the end to connect um, uh, this work with with Paul's uh, just massive emphasis on in Christ language. So participatory uh, soteriology and all of that um, has been uh, uh, a really significant piece of this book and this project for us um, is to see how that all comes together um, in light of thinking about the resurrection in this way. Thanks, guys. And if you're trying to discern voices, the first speaker there was David and the second one was Ben. Let me tell you a little bit more about our guests. Dr. David Downs is the Clarendon Lang Associate Professor in New Testament Studies at Oxford University's Keeble College. Previously, he was a professor of biblical studies at Fuller Theological Seminary and holds a variety of degrees from a whole bunch of places. Uh, in addition to the book we're discussing today, The Faithfulness of the Risen Christ, David has also published Alms with Baylor University Press, The Offering of the Gentiles, uh, Paul's Collection for Jerusalem and its Chronological, Cultural, and Cultural <laughs> Contexts with Maura Zeebeck and reprinted by Erdman's, as well as a bunch of other things. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Lapinga holds a PhD from Fuller uh, in Theology and New Testament. He was previously Associate Professor of Theology and Department Chair at Dort College in Sioux City. He is the author of Paul's Language of Zalos, Monosemi and the Rhetoric of Identity and Practice, published by Brill in 2016. Well, one of the things that Aaron and I both were wondering, and uh, as we, we kind of came up with questions independently, nevertheless, a lot of those questions overlapped, and this was uh, right at the top of both of our lists. Uh, how did you two team up to write this project? <laughs> well, I remember uh, pretty clearly um, I was back in Pasadena, um, where Fuller Theological Seminary is located, and uh, David at the time was a professor there. Um, and we were at, I think it was attending a, a conference of some kind or something, and we met for lunch um, to reconnect because uh, David was um, uh, my supervisor um, in my PhD program. And so we had struck up not only a relationship as a professor and student, but certainly as friends as well. And so are always interested in um, each other's work and um, just knowing what's going on in our lives. And um, David threw out uh, this, this idea that he had percolating in his head um, 
uh, about about doing a book. Um, and then I remember him talking um, in a way that really grabbed my attention about like, you know, no one writes books together in our guild. Um, we just don't do that. Um, but why? Why would we not do that? Um, and, and so we got talking and, and sort of that was the birth of, um, I think, this project, um, which has been uh, a, a few years in, in coming and now that it's out, but um, is, is, has been uh, just a joy, at least for me. Yeah, if I can uh, uh, jump in with my perspective, I vividly remember that uh, lunch conversation. At, it was at Earth Cafe on Colorado Boulevard in, in Pasadena. Yeah. And um, I had published an article in 2012 on the faithfulness of Christ in a particular construction in 2 Timothy 3.15. Um and that text got me thinking about a, a passage that actually is very important for our book, which we may discuss, which is 2 Timothy 2, 13, which says, um, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, uh, which we argue is clearly a reference to the faithfulness of the risen Christ. So that, had, that was only focused on 2 Timothy, and that had sort of gotten me thinking about the possibility of extending this argument to the larger Pauline corpus. And um, I have said in several contexts, I'm very, I've been very much influenced uh, by my wife, who's a physician scientist and who does a lot of grant writing and uh, scientific publishing. And in her world, nobody publishes anything on his or her own. Everything is collaboratively written. And I've seen in her writing and research the real benefits of working together with teams of people to do things. And um, so being influenced by her and then having... Uh, a tremendous amount of respect for Ben as a as a as a scholar. Um, you know, we're we're roughly the same age, so we were professor and student, but also more than that, friends, uh, uh, very good friends. And so I I just uh, thought it would be really fun to work together, and uh, knew that I would benefit from his expertise, and that the book, at least I hope hoped, and I still hope that the book is better for the two of us having written it together rather than just uh, doing it on my own. So I ask a follow-up question. How does it work when you co-author a book? How do you divide the labor and how do you handle it when you have disagreements and whatnot if you had disagreements over text, over resources, over whatever? How does that work? Yeah, I mean... Um... I think it was David's fault that we decided to just write every other word. Um, that made it a bit, a, bit, a bit more laborious than we <laughs> would have hoped. But, um, well, no, in all seriousness, um, I think uh, we didn't know the answer to that question when we started out because, again, um, this is this is something new and quite unique. Um, I think for us, a, a couple of things fell, uh, at least where we started. Um, David had, had mentioned the article that he had written on Second Timothy, um, and so there was some uh, uh, kind of a natural place for him to begin with, kind of the framing questions and the way that we wanted to. Um, and then my work in my first book was um, on more linguistic methodologies um, and the framework within which we wanted to approach things. And so I could sort of begin there. Um, and I think from that point on, we we just sort of you know kept a conversation open about um, how to divide the labor. Um, and I, I guess we roughly wrote. 
chapters, um, you know, uh, the same amount each. But there was just a, you know, a continual process of um, uh, give and take and reading um, what the other had written and then giving a a, a try at this and maybe moving a section from this part to this part. So I think the conclusion ended up being a pretty collaborative chapter. And, uh, you know, so, um, yeah, we just sort of found our way as as it went. Um, But I, I would say at least from my perspective, and David can weigh in as well, but um, the uh, the process was far less um, difficult, I think, in terms of disagreements and all of that than, than one might have expected. Um, uh, but I also think it's certainly, um, I, I don't know, I was reflecting on this, like when you write, um, to have somebody else who is just as immersed as you are in, in that project um, gives you a bunch of confidence, actually, in, in what you're writing, because you can always feel like if I'm, going off the rails here. I've got somebody who is just tracking right with me the whole way. Um, and so David was a wonderful um, partner in that way, even when we were working, you know, uh, sometimes thousands of miles apart from each other as we did it. Um, but just knowing that there was someone else uh, inhabiting uh, the work with me in that sense um, was was a really uh, fun process. Oh. I will say, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Matt. Um, I will say we didn't we didn't have very much that we disagreed on. Um, I think maybe some questions about authorship of certain books, but we we punted on that, or we uh, uh, we, we just relegated that to the footnotes and said this doesn't really matter for our argument. Um, but in terms of the substance of the argument, I think there was a fair fairly high level of coherence, um, which made it probably easier because we weren't um, going back and forth, uh, sort of arguing with each other in the process of writing the book. We we basically agreed. Um, it's a fairly simple argument in some ways, and then kind of working that out with regard to different texts. Um, yeah, we would one of us would take a, a shot at a, a chapter, and then we would trade that back and forth and edit it and revise uh, as needed. Um, uh, but it was a it was a fairly I think smooth and um, coherent process. Yeah, well, that's that's good to hear, and uh, it it does appear that you're still friends, and that's good. And I think there are a couple. <laughs> advantages to co-authoring something one is that if something's wrong you can just blame the other person and you know actually aaron aaron and i co-authored this interview together and if there's anything that you don't like in it i'm pretty sure that was aaron's Um, and um and we're not friends anymore aaron and i aren't speaking actually so we're gonna just talk i'm gonna talk to you david and ben and she's gonna talk to you but you notice that we're not talking to each other so it doesn't always work out well um yeah. Wait, um, so just to be clear, Matt. Um, wait, you're talking to so me. So anything? Oh, yeah, you. I'm gonna talk to you. But uh, uh, so it's my fault if you say something wrong. Just to be clear, like if if it's said in your voice, that's still my fault. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. That's, okay. That's okay. That's exactly how it works. I you like that. It. Okay. Then uh, uh, yeah. Then I'm sure likewise. <laughs> all right. Well, well, David, you you alluded to um, the fact that two Timothy uh, two eight through thirteen is particularly important to your project. Um, and, you know, and given that it is part of the disputed Pauline, you know, um, uh, in, in terms of its authorship, uh, corpus, uh, it's an unusual place to start. So um, how about you, um, as a kind of way of beginning to ease into the book itself, uh, why did you opt to begin there, given its controversial nature? Well, that's a good question, and one that I think— uh, uh, more than one reviewer of our book uh, picked up on and uh, perhaps was not entirely satisfied with our decision. But 
the reason we started with, uh, uh, I mean, in some sense, the reason the book starts with Second Timothy 2 uh, is because that's where the project started in some ways. Um, so uh, I kind of uh, got onto the idea um, because of what is said about the faithfulness of the risen Christ in Second Timothy 2.13. And uh, we felt like it would be a good um, way to, a good place to begin the study because it is, uh, I think among uh, all the texts that we look at in the Pauline corpus, it is the one place where clearly uh, the risen and exalted Lord, uh, the kingly, exalted, heavenly Jesus is called pistos, is called faithful. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the easiest text in some ways, just on the surface of it. So it made a good, we felt like it made a good um, uh, place to begin. Um, but then, of course, as you as you mentioned, Matt, that uh, that raised raised for us and raises for the book the question of the authorship of Second Timothy and how we handle that um, uh, uh, because many New Testament scholars, perhaps the majority of New Testament scholars, would not uh, acknowledge that Second Timothy is written by Paul. So maybe it doesn't have anything to contribute to our understanding of the Pistis Christi construction in the uh, uh, undisputed letters. We essentially um, tried to deal with that issue by stating that our argument is not really dependent upon any particular view of the authorship of Second Timothy. Um, so that either, if you think Paul wrote Second Timothy, you have evidence for Paul himself saying something like, the risen Christ is faithful. Um, or if you don't think Paul wrote Second Timothy, then you have evidence of an early interpreter uh, writing within the Pauline tradition framing the risen Christ as, as pistos or as faithful. So um, we sort of use that uh, and we acknowledge that it's an unconventional beginning. So we sort of use Second Timothy to frame the study at the, at the beginning, but then we jump into the, well, after a chapter on uh, methodology, looking at Second Thessalonians, then we jump into um, particular texts and try to make the argument that what we observe fairly clearly, we think, in Second Timothy um, is also present in Romans and first, uh, well, particularly Second Corinthians and Philippians, and then also Ephesians. Yeah. So I mean, to the extent that you know, you might think about uh, a, a potentially hostile critic of the book. You know, we we did talk about that a little bit. That like, well, there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to write this thesis off um, from the, the get-go because we start with Second Timothy. But um, I think for me in particular, just in the ways that I think about um, uh, interpretation in general and how we read texts, um, and, and even with the there's really important emphasis on early interpretations of the New Testament, um, truly for me, I think any reviewer can, even if they want to say like that first chapter uh, I don't care about that. Um, there's nothing there other than just some uh, other interpreter of Paul. So why should we consider that when we do Paul's? Well, that's actually fine because if you keep reading, um, if the if the further chapters on Galatians and Romans and and so forth um, don't do it for you, um, uh, then that's that's fine. Um, but it, it sort of puts the pressure on us to say, um, here's a lens. Uh, from which either Paul himself or an earlier interpreter um, uh, viewed things and stated things, um, is that, you know, heuristically, is that help us um, see something in Paul's letters themselves that we can judge on those letters um, uh, um, alone? Um, so it sort of puts the pressure on the rest of the book to deliver in a way, um, is how I, I would see that. 
And in point of fact, if I, uh, I don't remember if we put this in a footnote or not, but I, Ben can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this is one area where we disagree. So I, I, I think Paul wrote Second Timothy, and I think Ben is less convinced about that. Is that true, Ben? Yeah, I think I'm on a journey. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I am, I am more convinced. I think now uh, in that direction than I was at the beginning. But actually, probably more accurately, I, I don't think that matters much. Um, yeah. Just even the way of framing that, you know, what can we know about the historical Paul and all that sort of stuff, isn't really a question for me um, in the ways that I think about um, reading texts well, um, both um, in in general hermeneutics, but but also certainly uh, from the perspective of theological interpretation and um, and having the text of the New Testament and the Bible um, uh, be a rich resource for our lives um, in that way. I don't think that questions of historical authorship are all that interesting or relevant uh, to just about anything we do. So, yeah. Mm. So to ask a follow-up question about the um, relevance or interest in this uh, this issue of authorship, um, maybe to David, since you think Second Timothy was authored by Paul. Um, do you think that your thesis in any way contributes to the arguments for Pauline authorship of Second Timothy? I don't think so, no. And we didn't write the book uh, with that in mind, because as we said, we essentially um, tried to say that, it, and, and I think do directly say that it doesn't really matter. Um, so... Uh, so it doesn't demonstrate any sort of coherence between the theology of Second Timothy and the theology of the uncontested letters, for example. I think it does demonstrate coherence. I think it does demonstrate theological coherence between Second Timothy and the undisputed letters. But whether you can move from that kind of theological coherence to conclusions about authorship is, uh, I think, uh, not something I would be terribly confident about uh, because of in my view, sort of problematic history about making broad or confident assertions about authorship based on assumed theological viewpoints or development, theological mm. developments in particular. So um, I think it is coherent, but I don't think you can necessarily move from that particular point to larger claims about authorship. Well, let's let's move on to a, a topic that has to do more with your framework that you bring um, in terms of linguistics, and so this is especially you know Ben's contribution and expertise, at least that that, that he he managed to persuade you in this direction, and I think is in the process of persuading um, uh, many people in the academy. Um, but uh, this has to do with the relevance theory, um, and uh, so this is going to be probably new to a lot of listeners. Maybe you can explain what. Um, maybe as a way of starting, what's the problem in biblical studies that you're trying to overcome, and why does relevance theory help you overcome it? Yeah, um, well, I think actually I would probably push this more as a starting point anyway to um, to think about monosemi or a monosemic bias um, as the the corrective that I think um, I'm convinced of and and um, I hope others uh, become more so as well. Um, probably even more so than the particular linguistic um, framework relevance theory because there's also been some work done um, using some other alternative ways of thinking about how language works um, that have, have also started to push on this question of monosemi um, as something that's important. So I would just want to distinguish those a little bit and to say that um, I'm not advocating or we're not advocating 
relevance theory as the only way to, um, you know, responsibly interpret New Testament texts. Um, it's a way, um, but I think more importantly, um, as it plays out in how we use um, our lexicons in biblical studies, um, I think a monosemic bias um, is, is what we're after. So just to put it very simply, um, you know, when new students of uh, seminary students or, or those studying um, to read uh, the biblical texts in their original languages for the first time are introduced to some of the tools. We, of course, have, you know, BDAG and um, some of the other um, standard lexicons. And you flipped into the dictionary and you see a list under each word, um, sometimes numbered with several definitions. Um, and sort of the impulse and sort of unconscious thing that happens is we think, okay, so here are the possible options. So we might call that polysemy, right? So there's um, multiple meanings, we'd say, for uh, a particular word. And when we're reading a text, we choose which meaning we want, and we use that in our translation. So there's this um, selection going on, or, or we might use a fancier word like disambiguation or, or something like that. Um, but, uh, of course, the problem with that is those numbered lists of definitions or meanings are artificial. They're um, imposed upon words um, because words are simply, you know, the ways that human beings um, uh, in particular contexts um, have, have decided to, um, uh, to name things and to communicate and to be able to um, uh, have ideas and to tell each other things that they want to know. So um, instead of a an assumption that there is polysemy, that there are multiple definitions. Um, what we're after here is to say that um, the assumption, the default, should be monosemy. So um, before you go and say there must be a whole separate meaning here, um, let's just assume that there's a, a sort of one coherent, uh, I don't like that word meaning, but, but there is um, a, uh, a grab bag of a bunch of associated images and, and things we can name with language, but also some things that are more, um, uh, use other senses uh, to think about that kind of go along with a particular word. So when that word is used in dialogue, in a, in a text, um, those things are activated by the surrounding context. Um, and so if we think about words that way um, as having this one central um, uh, place from which we start, that can often open up for us uh, a better understanding of the way that authors uh, are actually using um, a particular word. Yeah, I know. I think that's fantastic. And um, certainly um, through conversations with David, I was introduced to your work and it, I, I found it to be very helpful, um, the idea of a monosemic bias um, in some ways, you know, as I've done some work in cognitive linguistics a little bit, I'm not necessarily looking at the monosemi issue in particular. Uh, I've learned more about how it is that, you know, sort of on a um, level of brain scan and things like that, uh, that we have data that would indicate um, that we have multiple uh, meanings that are actualized and present, and then uh, only subsequently after we, we reach even the level of consciousness does disambiguation happen. Um, so, yes. yeah, anyway, your work was certainly helpful for uh, cueing me in that direction. So um, I think you're doing um, some interesting uh, work, and I'm curious to see how the rest of the academy is going to, to continue to respond to it. One of my favorite moments uh, during my uh, graduate studies was when uh, – John Goldengay, um, uh, the well-known Old Testament professor who was at Fuller at the time, uh, just came to me uh, in a hallway one time and just stopped me and said, um, I think 
I'm a monosemist, um, and so he had been introduced to that work, and he liked that concept, and uh, uh, he probably forgot all about that by now, but uh, that, that was a, a big moment for me to think, like, oh, oh, cool, yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's a great story, Ben, but you really have to work on your Golden Gate impression. That, 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 <laughs> British, that, that British accent was not acceptable. Well, how about um and i don't know if maybe david if you want to tackle this thanks so much for that ben like um how does that connect to relevance theory more particularly then like as i think you did a great job of introducing monosemi um the the framework that you 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 kind of uh, situate monosemi in and for its importance would be relevance uh, the relevance theory though I'd be happy to take a stab at it, but Ben probably could give a better answer. Since <laughs> well, however you guys want, if you want, yeah. Ben, you no, can keep and, going if you want. And I didn't mean to diminish, um, for, for me, relevance theory and, and the way that it, it thinks about cognitive linguistics and, and the, what you were alluding to earlier, Matt, um, uh, is really exciting and is, is, is a great way to think about language. Um, so I didn't mean to diminish the importance of that for the ways that I actually uh, think are, are helpful and operative. Um, I just wanted to, to clarify that, you know, one doesn't need to uh, adhere to relevance theory necessarily in order to um, appreciate uh, the approach uh, and, and the changes I think we could make to our assumptions about how to do biblical studies. So that, that was my point there. But relevance theory itself um, uh, is, is, is fairly simple, but it's a way of thinking about how we make sense of things in our minds. Um, and it, it gets at, uh, just, to, just to put it uh, really roughly and maybe oversimplistically, but it gets at like maximizing sort of the payoff um, by having like the, the, um, uh, the, the meaning or the, the significance of a word um, that's closest to hand, that doesn't expend a lot of energy, um, uh, be the, the, the active um, uh, meaning that we, we, we give to a text as we read it or as we converse. Um, so this is what helps us think about the immediate um, discourse uh, of a text or, um, or or speech that has such a huge role in shaping um, the particular word in a given moment, and it's always on the fly, right? So it's ad hoc. It's it's always right um, happening as we go, um, in ways that we're not conscious of, right? So our brain is just doing this. Um, so a lot of this um, gets back again to um, the work of philosophers like Paul Grice, um, who had this maxim about, um, you know, words should 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 never have, um, uh, or how do I want to put this? Um, Dave, maybe you can uh, help me out here with the the Paul Grice phrase, but um, basically getting at like words should you should never do too much. You should never. Um, it shouldn't be too complicated, right? It should be as as, as simple as possible. And if it's not, we're we might be getting ourselves in, you know, spinning ourselves in directions we don't want to go. Um, so, so uh, Paul Grice's work in, in philosophy, but then also again um, cognitive linguistics, um, has sort of uh, given birth to this um, this field called relevance theory. Um, and so uh, there's been some exciting work done in, um, uh, yeah, again, with new technologies and, and all of this, um, it's fun to think about how our brains are actually working. And then, of course, um, to think about the ways that opens up space for us to read text better um, uh, is a pretty cool thing in general, um, but certainly for um, reading our, our, uh, the Bible as well. So just to um, piggyback on that, um, maybe with, since this is a, sort of a theoretical discussion uh, with a practical example. Um, the philosopher that Ben referred to, Paul Grice, said that senses are not to be multiplied beyond necessity. There you go. Um, 
With regard, for example, to Paul's use of the lexeme or the, the noun pistis, um, you will often read in commentaries that pistis has the sense of obedience. Um, and what we try to show in our study is that if you pay attention to how Paul uses this language, um, it's actually not the case that when he uses the term pistis in context, he's evoking notions or concepts of obedience. Um, uh, and when he does, he, uh, like in Romans 1.5, he often combines uh, an, uh, the noun pistis with a term like obedience to clarify that they're not exactly the same thing. So um, we're sort of pushing against um, uh, work in biblical studies that would um, look at a word like pistis and then sort of load it with all this freight um, uh, and sort of multiply the senses that are associated with it and trying to argue that what you really need to do is careful reading of the use of that term in a particular context uh, to understand what it means in that context. It's fairly simple, actually. <laughs> so I'm really interested in this from a from a sort of a the same the similar perspective, but I, I work in metaphor theory. So I've done work in cognitive linguistics from that lens of things. And um, one of the things that Ben just said that's really interesting to me is that um, you're interested in how brains process language and um, what actually happens when we're when we're reading a text. And uh, your book focuses mostly on how the text is constraining meaning. But I wonder, um, have you thought much about like, how how does a an ancient reader's brain figure into this? I mean, we don't have access to that, but um, it seems like cognitive linguists want to say that actually it it does make a difference if someone who's an expert in something is reading versus somebody who's a novice in something is reading. And um, I'm just wondering if if you've thought about how like how to account for that variable of the brain that's actually impacted by this text and, you know, the differences or maybe similarities between ancient readers and ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. And, and um, also one that it, it isn't a primary focus of our book. So I don't know if we want to get too far into the weeds with it. But um, I do think uh, this this does get at a, a key question for us personally, I think, as um, scholars um, and as um uh, believers um, and the question of uh, why we are approaching texts. So I, I think I'm, I'm trying to get at this the, this um, distinction that you make between us uh, readers today of Paul's texts um, versus um, so far as we can discern the the first readers of Paul's text or ancient readers. Uh, um, and where where are we locating the significance? What are we trying to interpret, right? So typically in our guild, um, we've spent more of our energy on, um, you know, uh, locating this, like what would Paul's first readers have been hearing and how can we determine that? Um, but I think there's been more and more um, uh, an increasing appreciation for the fact that that's always going to be an artificial project, um, and truly to understand texts and and to read them well, um, whether we're talking about religious texts or not, um, to understand any text well, um, is to think about um, our situatedness as readers um, and also the history of the interpretation of this, um, which rather than, for me personally, rather than becoming um, discouraged by that and just feeling like this is impossible, there's nothing we can possibly say or agree on, uh, it's just going to be totally um, up to the whim of whoever wants to construe things as they are, 
uh, for me, it's actually exciting because it, it opens up and it breathes life into these texts um, is to say, um, yes, we want to care about the, the sociocultural you know, embeddedness of uh, these texts, but also we can think about the ways that real people throughout time and in now today um, and ourselves are, are implicating ourselves in this material and, and thinking about it richly. So I'm sort of getting away from your question about brains and um, uh, uh, you know how cognitive linguistics help us understand this, um, but I do think we do want to assume a little bit that there's uh, uh, you know our brains work in a pretty similar way to brains from a couple thousand years ago, um, and and that if we're learning things about um, the way. Uh, communication happens, the way language uh, forms and gets employed, um, that, that we can say the things that are happening uh, and we can even measure now today, um, we're probably also at work then. Um, and I think you see evidence for that in these texts when you open up space to think about language and semantics in the ways that we do. Hmm. Uh, and, um, just to add to that, uh, sometimes I'm jealous uh, of I mentioned my wife who does uh, scientific research because she has actual data, you know, that she can look at. And we in the humanities are sometimes just constrained to reading texts. Uh, but but we have, for example, uh, we've done some work together in Tanzania looking at groups of readers and asking them questions and sort of um, engaging in the discipline of what is sometimes called empirical hermeneutics, which takes real live readers and has them engage with text and sort of tries to map out what they think. And it's been helpful and instructive. But of course, you're very, um, when you do something like that, you're very uh, uh, much wishing that you could have that similar evidence um, for, for early readings of the New Testament. So we don't have that kind of evidence. But I will say, our book does conclude um, with uh, a very brief look at one early reader of Paul, uh, namely Ignatius of Antioch. And so while we don't have a wealth of evidence for how Paul's language of faith or pistis was construed among his early readers, it is, we suggest, um, interesting at least, that at least two times in Ignatius's letters, he refers to pistis or faith or faithfulness as a property or a gift of the risen Lord Jesus. And in both instances where he does that, um, he doesn't directly cite Paul's letters, but there are uh, echoes, uh, to use language that is sometimes found in our field, there's echoes or echoes of or allusions to Paul's letters in those contexts. So we posit, perhaps a little bit tentatively, um, Ignatius of Antioch as an early reader of Paul, who is picking up on these themes or this notion that pistis is something that belongs to or is demonstrated by or is given from the risen and exalted Lord Jesus. So that would be one. We wish we had more evidence. And maybe actually, I think probably there's a good doctoral dissertation to be written here, looking at this and other texts in the second through fifth centuries, say. Um, but our book concludes by um, doing a little bit of an exercise in reception history, uh, some, somewhat to answer the, the question that you've posed, Aaron. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a follow-up question still on relevance theory and um, kind of try to tease out the practical payoff for your project. Um, and so there's a some there's something of a debate in our field between, on the one hand, like Barry Matlock, who uh, very um, very much argues in favor of what's called the objective genitive, that it, we're talking about faith in Christ, that humans give toward Christ. 
Um, and on the other hand, um, someone like uh, F. Gerald Downing, and uh, he's written this um, very, very helpful article on faith and on um, ambiguity, right? And um, yeah, so as you guys take your own position in your book, like who's right in that debate um, and uh, and why? And, and what's the relevance specifically for Pistis in terms of how we should understand actualizations of that as we find usages in Paul's letters? Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I'm not going to weigh in with a definitive uh, who's right. Um, I, I think that what I would say is that the linguistic framework that we develop, um, and, and I might add another name to that too. So Teresa Morgan um, has a very important recent book um, on Pistis um, and Fides in the ancient world. Um, and I think that she's more along the lines of, of Downing, um, and you have this kind of pervasive polysemy, right? So there's there's ambiguity at work there. Um, and that's, that's certainly... Uh, in in the right ballpark, I think um, of of where we've decided to go. What I find helpful about the relevance theoretic um, monosemic bias is that it gives us um, a little more confidence and clarity with which to to make the claims and observations that people like Downing and um, and Morgan are are making. So um, in the book, uh, we trace uh, some of their their work on um, Pistis um, and show that they, they gesture in this direction of, um, uh, so they'll, they'll talk about, you know, radical or pervasive polysemy, um, which strangely uh, I think is better understood as, as monosemy, um, as uh, properly understood. Um, so not monosemy in a restrictive sense that there is just one meaning and you got to just plug in this, um, this simple thing all the time, but that, um, this, this grab bag is is a singular one. There is something there um, that that holds these concepts that can then be activated by the particular context. So um, uh, yeah, so so uh, Matlock's work um, is very careful and important and and helpful, uh, but he is drawing on a, um, I think a a view of semantics um, that that has some. Uh, problematic uh, assumptions that are made in it um, that have to do with disambiguation and choosing between options um, as opposed to um, a, a more living, breathing understanding of, of how a single um, word can operate. Let me, let me give you the other language that um, this is from a cognitive linguist. But I, think, I think his name is Vivian Evans. I'm not sure if I'm saying his first name right. Um, but he has a, a book, How Words Mean, an Oxford University Press monograph. And he, he argues for what's called principled polysemy, which is essentially um, a monosemic bias with radials. So he sort of he argues that on the one hand, we're, the, there's like a sort of a monosemic core, but that extending out from that, we can conventionalize um, uh, we can conventionalize meanings that radiate outward from that. And I found that to be a helpful way of thinking about what's going on. It sort of preserves a monosemic idea. Um, and a monosemic bias, but it also makes sense of why we can find conventionalized additional senses. So, but I think the importance of that for the Pistis lexicon is that um, something like faith in and faithfulness toward or trust in and loyalty toward aren't normally disambiguated in our texts, that they both are usually present. Now, they can be disambiguated, uh, but that we have to at least start with the idea that they're both present simultaneously. Yes, so that's it, excellent. Yeah, anyway, that's that, that's a, an additional sort of framework or, or language to kind of, I think, uh, take a stab at what you're, it seems like, feeling toward um, in, uh, in, in this whole discussion. Should we do a speed round, Matt? 
Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Change things up a bit. Yeah. I'll go first. Okay. Because David's ready, right? Oh, sure. but I'm tricky. So I'm tricky. how are you going to do it? Are you is it, you so, want David to ask a question, answer one, and then Ben? Or so I was thinking. Okay. No, I was thinking. I was I was really hoping that both of them would weigh in because some of them okay. are directed. Some of them are directed at both of you. So. Okay. So I, I, yeah. I think it might be interesting to compare. So if you're if you're still friends now, you might not know. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So yeah, please both answer um, each question, and please uh, the the idea of a speed round is to keep your answers short, and you don't necessarily need to defend them. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, here we go. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Peanut butter ripple ice cream. Peanut butter balls. Uh, I see how you collaborated on something. Okay. <laughs> if you two were a superhero duo, what would your names and superpowers be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> there, how many duos are there? I mean, I, there's only, you know, Batman and Robin. And um... No, you're coining a new one. Okay, we have to coin a new one. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll give this a stab. It would be uh, our names would be qualifier and plotter, because <laughs> and our powers would be we. Well, one of the reasons we became friends is because we both enjoy running. Um, but Ben is a much faster runner than me, and so he's qualified <laughs> on multiple occasions for the Boston Marathon, which is a dream of mine. But I'm not fast enough to do it, so I sort of plod <laughs> along as a runner. Uh, but Ben is the qualifier, so I would be his sidekick. And uh, I would oh, I would dear. run around and help while he's like running to solve crimes. I would give him goo packs and um, uh, you know Vaseline or whatever whatever he needed <laughs> to complete his oh, task God. as a runner. This is devolving quickly. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> ben, do you want to weigh in? Happy to be the qualifier. Oh, uh, yeah. No, see, when he says that, I'm thinking, uh, you know, oh, he means that, you know, he can he can plot things out with clarity and, um, you know, um, concision. And I am the rambling, uh, you know, um, I'm the one who just so. Yeah, when it, we, we, we run races in the way he described, but then um, when it comes to doing our work in scholarship, um, I, I am the uh, the one who constantly needs to be reined in from just spinning off the rails. Um, so we have this, yeah. The, the symmetry comes back. <laughs> That's great. What is a trend in society that you find disturbing? Anti-intellectual thinking. Uh, suspicion of experts. I like that one a lot. I think I would agree. I would also, I mean, we're recording this um, right after uh, an election here in the UK. Um and as there's, you know, an impeachment trial happening in the United States, so I would say populism is mm. um, something that concerns me. Mm. Name a movie that you liked better than the book it was based on. I'm not sure if I can think of one. I, I have, we have little <laughs> kids, so I don't hardly watch any movies except <laughs> by Pixar or DreamWorks, which mm. do not mm -hmm. tend to be based off of books. 
I really liked the Paddington movies. I also have young kids, so um, I really liked the Paddington movies. But that that's like the wrong answer because uh, the, the Paddington books were like so formative for me. Um, so that's not better. Uh, but it is. It is. Uh, mm. I'm glad it exists. Yeah. Actually, uh, Ben Ben just prompted me. Uh, so we actually we I should have thought of this earlier. We just finished reading Peter Pan to our kids. Uh, and I liked the book, but it was much more violent and darker than I <laughs> So our, our kids are nine, seven, and five, and we kind of got to the end and thought, should we continue reading this? So I, I don't particularly love the movie, but I think it's a better movie mm. for children than the book is for, than the book is for children. Mm. But we did finish it. It, it. Yeah, it's interesting. Captain Hook is much more sympathetic, and Peter Pan is much more unlikable in the book than in the movie. Oh, I haven't read that in a while. I think yeah. mine, mine in that vein is the Princess Bride. I love the Princess oh. Bride, the movie. the 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 book is like challenging. I think. I don't know. The book's good too, but the movie I think is better. Ah, anyway, uh, do you have any stupid human tricks or hidden talents that you're willing to share with us right now? <laughs> I have one that uh, the listeners will not be able to appreciate, but you will be able to see on <laughs> Skype. Which is that I can oh, bend can take my, a screenshot. <laughs> I can bend my thumb back oh. uh, to like a ninety degree angle. Yeah, so there you a little go. disturbing. Is that, is that something you practice, David? Or no, I'm, I'm double jointed in my thumb. Oh wow, that's wow. something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think is the strangest aspect of our jobs as biblical scholars? I think the SBL, the annual meeting of the SBL is definitely the weirdest thing that we do as biblical scholars. It's just such a strange gathering. Um, mm. But I think something that people don't necessarily, you don't, at least I didn't appreciate or have a sense of when I went into the field is how much administrative work we have. Uh, so it's not exactly strange, but um, you don't go get a PhD in biblical studies to do committee work, but you end up doing a lot of committee work when you have a <laughs> job in biblical studies. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you asked that question at a time that I'm sort of in a, a funny season um, where I, I'm actually working uh, a, a sort of hourly job. Um, so I have this ability right now to look back on uh, the last several years of my life as a professional biblical scholar with some distance um and so i can i can uh both uh long to be back in a in a, a little bit more of my sweet spot um but also um can sort of uh um see some things that maybe you don't when you're just in it um so i don't know i i think one of the weirdest things is uh just how um how somehow there is so much flexibility in your time um, that you can give to thinking and writing and teaching and all that stuff. There's just tons of flexibility in your schedule. Um, and yet uh, there's so much that, that gets done. So it seems like um, it, it seeps into our, you know, dreams uh, even. And so every, every waking second is always thinking about the next thing or, or to be stressed. So th there are, um, it's very porous, like there, it pours into your whole life. Uh, I think that's a pretty strange thing about being a biblical scholar. <laughs> maybe it's all, maybe that's a positive as well, but it, it certainly has some um, drawbacks. Hmm. Hmm. Matt, do you want to move on? 
Yeah, sure. Um, let's let's jump back into uh, your chapters, um, and you know, given time is moving along, I, I don't know exactly where all we want to land. Um, we had some questions about the Philippians chapter, the Corinthians chapter, Galatians, and so on. But uh, maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll hit the Philippians one first. Um, and uh, Philippians three nine, right, is a, is a passage that is particularly important in the Epistus Christi debate, and it seems like it's central to your guys's understanding too. Um, I'll go ahead and read a little bit of, of, of the context. And here I'm reading from your page 56, 57 in your own translation. Paul says, more than that, I even regard everything as a loss because of the supreme value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have forfeited all things, and I regard them as trash in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Christ the righteousness from God depending on faithfulness to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the partnership of his sufferings by being conformed to his death, if somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, um, it seems that you you think that this is a particularly important example for establishing the legitimacy of what's called a subjective interpretation, um, that we're talking about the faithfulness of Christ, not just faith in Christ, um, I, I tend to agree with you, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to um, sort of front the evidence. Um, why do you think that this is a particularly decisive example in that debate? Well, um, in some sense, I mean, the book uh, we we didn't not write we did not write the book in order to defend the subjective genitive. We sort of start begin with that as a starting point. So people might be disappointed if they think we're advocating a new argument in defense of. Um, the a translation faithfulness of Christ or faith of Christ. Um, but having said that, um, uh, I mean, w- we think in this particular context, uh, in, 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 in the context of Paul's argument in Philippians three, he is clearly drawing a contrast between a certain type of righteousness that is associated with law adherence and another kind of righteousness that comes through either faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. And we are convinced, along with others, that it makes better sense of that particular contrast and of the passage as a whole to think of pistis there referring to something that originates from Jesus. But then our question is sort of, if it's true that pistis is a property of Christ or a gift of Christ or something that emanates from Christ, um, where is that located? And as we said earlier, most almost all proponents of this subjective genitive would um, define that in terms of Jesus's death on the cross. And what we try to observe in this particular passage, of course, is that um, it's not that the cross doesn't matter here or elsewhere in Paul's letters. I mean, he talks about being a partner in the suffering of Jesus, uh, but the cross is not the end of the story. And so in this particular context, um, what Paul really wants um uh, to know is Christ and the power of his resurrection, as well as partnership in in, in Jesus's sufferings, um, uh, so that he might attain to the resurrection of the dead. So what you have here is an emphasis not just on the death of Jesus, though it's certainly present, but also on Paul's hope to participate um, in the life of the risen Jesus. And so here and elsewhere in the project, I mean, I think what we're trying to do and Matt, I know this has resonances with with some things that you've done in uh, your two recent books. Um, we're trying to argue 
that Paul's, we're trying to argue specifically that Paul's understanding of Jesus's pistis moves beyond the cross because we want in some way to reclaim the importance of resurrection and exaltation for Paul's theology. And I know you've done work uh, and I've appreciated your work on uh, sort of playing that out with reference to Paul's gospel and the importance of Christ's enthronement for understanding Paul's gospel. So um, I think if there's a subtext to the sort of specific exegetical arguments that we develop in the book, it's perhaps um, a larger theological context that so strongly emphasizes the the death of Jesus and even the atoning significance of the death of Jesus, that the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus are things that kind of get tagged on as you know, Paul mentions that, but materially, it's not that important for his theology. And what we want to say is that the story of Jesus absolutely includes for Paul the significance of Jesus's death, but it also includes for Paul the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. Yeah, I think just hearing you read that this passage again, Matt, it, there it, it reminded me of one of the things that kept recurring during the writing of the book, and that is um, once you think about uh, the resurrection and the importance of that for Paul. Um, it's it's quite astonishing to visit these texts, which have been so much attention has been given to them um, in terms of the cross and in terms of justification um, and atonement and things like that. Um, but if you just if someone just alerts you to the fact that, well, what is what does Paul say here? What kind of words are used? I mean, that language of resurrection is absolutely pervasive. Um, particularly in these sections, not just in Paul's letters elsewhere, and therefore we can situate this there, but particularly in these sections and closely intertwined with the, the language. Um, so, you know, uh, that's key for Paul, um, cl uh, clearly. And somehow we've been able to filter that out um, in our ways of thinking about um, or emphasizing probably too heavily um, the cross, the cross, the cross, um, or the obedience on the cross um, that, that, for Paul, that always is couched within uh, the resurrection because the living Christ who is faithful to us um, uh, is the one to whom we can be um, bound and in union. Um, and so that's that's crucial. Yeah, maybe I'll ask a follow-up question on Philippians. Um, you say uh, that, that Philippians does not contain the sense of obedience. Um, that you, I'm going to quote you. It says, it is nowhere evidence... Um, that a sense of obedience is activated by pistis or its cognates in the letter. And in, in doing that, you have a, a, a rather fiery footnote uh, to that where you take aim at kind of giants in New Testament studies like Richard Hayes and Marcus Blockmule and Luke Timothy Johnson, just to name a few. So why do you think it's problematic to link faith with obedience in Philippians, given that, um, given what you've just said about uh, Christ's own faithfulness um, in the resurrection. Why can't it include that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the uh, forcefulness of the footnote or, or, or the um, uh, the um, maybe overconfidence we have in taking on some of these giants or whatever, I, I think that that's, that's only there because it's necessary sometimes when you have um, one of these ideas that just becomes entrenched um there's mm. this there's this inertia that that exists and in order to get out of that groove a little bit um i think it's important to state things um pretty forcefully and so when you identify something with some clarity as as we do in in this particular um context of philippians um i, I think it's important to just 
state it and then and then point out, hey, here's where it, this gets said without um, they're just making an assumption here, and this isn't necessarily correct. Um, so let's examine that. So that, I think that's why we we push hard at that point um, mm. um, because it is important. It's one of those things that if you assume it, it will determine for you the outcome. Um, and if we're going to see things um, with a little bit more clarity um, and to see things, I think uh, a better reading of Paul ultimately, um, I think we do need to weed that one out. Um, I don't know, David, would you? Yeah, and what's so problematic that? about it? I think that's I think that's what was interesting to me, and and one of my lingering questions, like what what is it that's so problematic about linking faith with obedience in Philippians? Well, I think what's problematic is that Paul does not do it. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, Paul does refer to the obedience of Jesus in his death on a cross in chapter two, mm. but our study of pistis um, and its and its cognate pistuo. In, it, in, in the ways in which Paul uses that up until chapter 3, verse 9, and he does not use that terminology after that. Um, our study uh, contextually, and this is sort of the working out of relevance theory, um, indicates that um, obedience is not a sense uh, activated by the lexeme pistis or the lexeme pistuo in the context of Philippians. So there's when, when you look at how the language is used— we argue, um, it does not evoke this idea of obedience. So when you get to chapter 3, verse 9, um, uh, a reader who's been informed and shaped by the use of that terminology prior to that point would not necessarily assume that pistis means obedience. But so often in the scholarly literature, you get, because people are sort of um, working with a semantic perspective that is shaped by polysemy, and also by tradition that sort of says pistis means obedience, you get exegesis of Philippians 3.9 that unpacks that in terms of Christ's faithful, obedient to the point of death, which clearly Paul does refer to in, in chapter 2, but not with reference to pistis. So hmm. um, that's I think that's what's at stake um, uh, methodologically and uh, exegetically in that, in that particular claim. Hmm, that's really helpful. Really helpful. Can I ask a question about Galatians now, Matt, or do you want to talk about... I wanted to jump actually to Romans and um, to hmm. hear you speak a little bit about how you apply David Moffat's um, work um, on Hebrews, where he's talked about the logic of atonement in Hebrews, and um, how that helps you make sense of Romans 3.25. So I think that's a, it's kind, of a, kind of a good way of wrapping up some of the importance theologically of what you've done. Yeah, um, and this is a, 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 a tricky thing to do because um, one of the things that is important to us um, is that uh, we don't want the book to get um, dismissed on the basis of, uh, um, you know, just importing something that might be going on in Hebrews uh, onto Paul's texts. Um, so it's a little bit dangerous uh, waters to draw on, um, you know, a study of Hebrews, essentially, in order to um, shed light on Romans. But... Um, it, in the end, it was a, a move worth doing, um, I think, because um, if you can understand uh, Moffat's uh, really important and, and wonderful work on Hebrews, um, um, and so for our listeners who don't know what we're talking about, um, the the main concept here is that the reference to blood um, as a, a way of signaling um, the uh, um, uh, uh, the process of, especially the, the Yom Kippur um imagery, um, of sacrificial imagery, um, the reference to blood uh, is often just assumed to be a knockdown argument that if Paul says blood, 
clearly we're talking about the cross, right? So as we've already mentioned in this interview, um, the emphasis is that pistis is speaking about the cross, um, and we sort of stop there. Um, and our book is arguing, no, it isn't. We're talking about the resurrection. So it's actually fascinating uh, when you look closely at Paul's text that um, I think it would make a lot of sense um, in, in drawing on the work of Moffat and others um, that Paul, in invoking the language of blood, isn't actually um, drawing attention primarily to the act of killing or slaughtering um, because that imagery um, uh, for these early readers um, would have been one of thinking about sprinkling blood as a sign of life um, and not death, actually. So if we allow um, or consider that perhaps that's what's going on with Paul, um, I, I think this text in, in Romans 3 um, can be read quite differently than, than the way it normally is. That's helpful. Um, yeah, and so this language then obviously is important as it connects to ideas of atonement or expiation, um, and it looked like you guys were angling more in the expiation direction, right, uh, in your overall understanding here. Um, but yeah, the idea that the life is in the blood, right, is a key Old Testament concept that you're capitalizing here and, and uh, looking at the actual process of atonement and saying that maybe maybe we're looking at the presentation of Jesus's blood, right, as being uh, the atonement, uh, the moment of atonement, and that's a presentation in the heavenly realm, uh, not just a presentation at the cross. So right. yeah, anyway, I thought that was an interesting, um, interesting kind of way of uh, doing some good cross-disciplinary work within our own discipline, right? As uh, <laughs> David Moffat's work has been so important in Hebrews, uh, but there hasn't been much crossover in the Pauline studies, and um, I thought you guys did a nice job there. <laughs> well, um, how about we do a, a, a second speed round, uh, and maybe we won't do quite so many questions, uh, but uh, and then maybe we'll have a, a final um, kind of application sort of question, and then we and we need to sign off, I think. So here's a here's a couple speed round questions for you, just to mix things up. So, uh, are avocados the best food God ever created? Yes. Absolutely not. I, I like avocados, but uh, no. <laughs> All right. Um, how about this one? Is, is there intelligent alien life elsewhere in the universe? Yes. No. <laughs> you guys are not a team. Uh, you, <laughs> Yes. No. Well, you, you agreed we about are. peanut butter. You, you agreed about we're such a team that we can have a variance and disagreement within a much more uh, fuller, richer uh, uh, relationship. So there you go. All right. Now I don't remember if I asked David this one. We used to ask this one all the time. But if I already asked, I'll ask Ben. We'll ask Ben to start. But uh, what's one idea in the field of biblical studies that needs to die? An idea in the field of biblical studies that needs to die. Uh, yeah. I mean. For sure, for me, um, the notion that, that there is one meaning in a text and our job as interpreters or as the faithful um, is to uh, uh, locate that meaning and mine it out and then um, preserve it for all time, um, I think that needs to die. David? I don't think you asked me before. I would say the confidence with which people construct the historical Paul, uh, including the historical Paul who wrote only seven letters. Um, so I've already tipped my hand to what I think about some issues of authorship. Uh, and I've, I've certainly been influenced by uh, Benjamin White's book um, and others who have sort of pressed against the sense in which this particular construct 
was developed in a particular social, political, ideological, theological context. I think uh, that the, those ideas have sort of been inherited in our discipline and just uh, accepted uncritically. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I'm with you. Um, all right. So how about as a final question, then, uh, if a pastor were to preach a series of sermons drawing from your book, what would you hope is emphasized? Well, uh, she or he could just read the chapters. I mean, I think they <laughs> preach. Well, they're well written. I mean, surely that's a group audience. There's no doubt. I, I mean, I go to I go to church on Sundays hoping to hear sermons on relevance theory. Personally, I'd find that really enriching. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, we've nodded to this a little bit earlier, but I, I don't think you can overstate um, the importance of Paul's. Uh, in Christ language. Um, and so, especially when it comes to preaching, um, you know, if, if that doesn't come out of our book, if you read the book and you think it's just about relevance theory or, or um, some minutia of, you know, Greek um, uh, or something, uh, you're, you're missing what the whole thing is pointing to. And that is um, that, uh, that the way by which um, uh, believers are bound to Christ in this kind of mysterious but wonderful um, way. Um, it 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 is crucial for how we live our lives um, uh, when we think about it in this way. And and there have been um, very rich theological traditions that have emphasized um, uh, you know a, a participation in soteriology. Um, so to look at something that seems perhaps like new or like this newfangled reading of Paul, um, but actually to see how well it connects with um, some, I, I think, really strong and important um, theological emphases throughout, you know, even in, um, you know, John Calvin's work, for example, you know, that that, that uh, people in those circles can, can take their own tradition and say, like, yeah, actually, um, that's why uh, that's so important uh, for us in the ways that we think about salvation and, and to move us away from some of the more um, forensic and, um, and, and perhaps um, sterile notions of of how salvation works so i, I would certainly want to see uh preaching about about uh in christ and how that um, pervades these particular texts that we often just think about it with with words like justification um in a, in a legal sense i i would only i i think that's great um uh, and just to sort of piggyback on that yeah the 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 for paul the christ to whom um followers of Jesus are united is certainly the crucified Christ. They are joined to him in his suffering, but also the resurrected and exalted Christ. And you really need the whole picture, the whole biblical picture of um, Jesus to understand Paul's Christology and Paul's soteriology. And so often there's been an emphasis on the crucifixion um, while ignoring uh, the importance for Paul of Jesus's resurrection and heavenly exaltation. And one a couple of years ago, actually, I was asked to preach uh, at our church in Pasadena on Ascension Sunday, and I had a lot of fun because you don't get a lot of sermons that talk about the importance of the Ascension. So, um, uh, so it was a for me a reminder that this work is important for the life of the church, and for understanding um, the significance of um, the significance for the risen Christ or of the risen Christ and the exalted Christ for Paul's theology. Yeah. Uh, I think one last thing that I would say in terms of emphasizing what what to preach and maybe just to bookend things a little bit is where we started thinking about this text from Second Timothy. Um, but uh, just circumstances in my own life and um, I think everyone's lives in various seasons, um, 
make us deal with with very pressing existential questions of uh, you know doubt and faithlessness, um, apistia, you know, um, and so uh, to think about reading. Paul's text um, and to pay attention um, to the sort of um, wonderful comfort uh, that is there uh, that I think is summed up just just with incredible power um, at the end of this section in, in 2 Timothy 2. Um, if we are faithless, um, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And in that you have encapsulated um, uh, Christ um, is so bound to us and the, the relationship of and his faithfulness to us, um, both disciplining us, but also um, loving us uh, without end, um, is so much that when we are faithless, um, he only sees his own faithfulness um, because we're that closely bound to him. Um, and so if that can be brought out, um, not only in Second Timothy, but in Romans and Galatians and Philippians and, and these other texts um, uh, by preachers and, and others thinking about the importance of these words for their lives, um, that will be uh, a good thing. This is Matthew Bates and Aaron Heim for On Script. Our guests today have been David Downs and Benjamin Lapinga, co-authors of the exciting new book, The Faithfulness of the Risen Christ with Baylor University Press. Listeners, you are definitely going to want to pick this book up. Uh, it's a great book. There are links on our website, onscript.study. Thanks again for the conversation, David and Ben, and thanks to all our listeners. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.